listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Now I want you to think about conversations that you get into, awkward conversations. And you get around folks that you're just, you're not familiar with. And if you're at all introverted, okay, any conversation is just about going to be awkward unless it's somebody in your immediate family, okay? But for all of us, we come into awkward situations. And I want you just to think. It's not a trick question. When you get into a situation where you're with somebody and, and you can tell, okay, we're either going to stand here and look at one another weirdly for the next few minutes or we can talk about something. What is the one thing that you know because you're thinking, oh my gosh, what, what are we going to talk about because, man, I don't want to offend anybody and it seems like anything you say about anything nowadays is going to be offensive, but what is the one thing that we all experience the same way that if we can't think of anything else to talk about, we can always talk about what? The what? The weather. We... We can say, sure is hot out today. <laughs> and you're in Florida, and it's been hot out today like 339 days out of the year. But you can say that, and that awkward silence will probably have a response of, yeah, it is. And then you go, now what? Sure hope we have some rain soon. Yeah, that'd be nice. And so you can talk about the weather. Anybody have a favorite weather person? Anybody have a favorite weather person? Anybody you follow that you say, you know what, I can't trust anybody, but if so-and-so says it, they say. Anybody got one? Who's got one? Paul Delegato? What, what, what station is he on? That's Fox. Anybody follow uh, Dennis? What's Dennis's last name on ABC Action News? I like Dennis. He's funny. Okay. He's kind of corny. I like him. He, he, but you know what? They all get it wrong some of the time. And they get it right some of the time. And then, you know, in between, they're just asking one another, what do you think? They're all looking out the window and telling you what we all see. Right? Weather. In Florida, I, I came to realize early on, we've been here 13 years. I understand, it, it statistically, I understand that after seven years, if you're from out of town, if you live somewhere for seven years, then you're considered local, okay? I've been waiting on my Polk County local card to come in the mail, and it ain't come yet, but I'm just saying after 13 years, I feel local, okay? But one of the first things that we discovered is that when we got to Florida, there is a lot of conversation in Florida about a particular type of weather, which you all that are native Floridians know is called a what? A hurricane. And they start popping up sometime in the summer and can go all the way to Christmas, but not really. They can go, we feel like it though. We're going all the way to Christmas, it feels like. And we talk about the weather and weather patterns and we see things and we're like, it's coming. No, it's going. And what's it going to do? And we watch and we wonder and we talk and think a lot about the weather. That's what we're going to talk about this morning from a certain point of view is the weather. Now, Luke as he's painting the picture 
of the life of Jesus, as he's painting his portrait, then we've got him taking pieces of the oral tradition and the written tradition, and he's putting them together, and he's building a case for someone he named early off as our brother Theophilus, but probably he's writing it for a larger Greek population. And so he's taking these scenes and he's weaving them together so as to build this narrative about the one we know as Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about things that we know more about than Theophilus did at that time. In fact, we know more about some of these things than even Luke knew about at that time, very likely. But we're going we're gonna to try to see as we study this book, and we'll be here a while, okay? We're only in chapter number 8, and, and you know there's over 20 chapters. We're going to be here a while, but that's okay. And as we study this, we're going to try to see it through the lens of those reading it first, if possible. But we can't help what we know. We can't help what we're already aware of because of the other New Testament books and the other gospel writers. So Luke is building this image of Jesus, if you will. He's painting this portrait, and we're just coming off of Jesus uh, explaining to his disciples and to those that are hearing, and, and he's explaining the reality that closeness to Messiah, access to Messiah is not based on family relation. It's not based on nationality. It's not even based on who thinks that, uh, that this class or that class should probably have greater or less access to Messiah. Jesus defined access to him in terms of obedience. And that obedience comes first by faith in his person. You obey the word of God. You hear the word of God and you obey it. When you hear Jesus say that I am Messiah, I am the one that God has sent in order to bring uh, release to the captives, in order to bring freedom to those in bondage. I am the one that has come to set you free from your sin. And as people began to hear and believe, they were following and Jesus would preach and they would put his preaching to action, they would take his words and they would obey them. And so now Luke is going to shift gears just a little bit. And in this chapter number eight, he's going to shift the gear into not only showing that Jesus and access to him is on the basis of obedience, but he's going to show the, the miraculous works of Jesus and he's going to begin building this case that Jesus is more than just a man to be obeyed. He's someone with the power and authority of God. In these next several verses from 22 all the way to 56 of chapter number 8, Luke's going to show Jesus' power. I'll go ahead and let it out of the bag. Luke is going to show Jesus' power over nature, over demons, over disease, and over death. Now, we've already seen that Jesus has raised a, a, a single woman, a widow woman's son on the way to the burial place. We've already seen that Jesus has raised this person from the dead. But Luke's going to take the opportunity to show these amazing works that only Christ can do, works that only God can do. His power over nature, demons, disease, and death. 
But we want to take these and we want to look at them over the next couple of weeks. The first we want to see is Jesus' authority, Jesus' power over nature. It's important. We see it in verse number 22 of chapter number 8. If you don't have uh, the church app, I would encourage you to go to the App Store, Google Play, look up Oasis Church, W-H as in Winter Haven, and you should be able to find our app. From there, you should uh, be able to pull up all our notes, everything. uh, You'll also be able to go to, uh, from our Sunday section, you'll be able to see links to the songs that we sang this particular week. So you can go back, you can listen to them throughout the week. It's a great place to interact, get news, get alerts and things of that nature, I would encourage you to do that if you don't already have it. Luke chapter number 8 verse 22. It says, one day he, talking about Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake, that being the, the, the Sea of Galilee. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? Who is this we're dealing with? What we're going to see in this passage, the the main focus that Luke is trying to, to, to show about Jesus is that Jesus has the authority and power of God over nature. He's painting this picture and, and up in this corner he's, he's putting a little, a, a little bitty picture of this amazing thing that Jesus did that, that only God can do. This authority and power that Jesus has. And we're going to ask the question that Jesus asked having to do about their faith. But, but let's, let's, let's ask the question that they did there at the end. Who, who then is this? So I think about this story, and as I have read it in the past, I grew up as a child around the lake. I, I don't know how many of you have, have spent any time in northeast Georgia, but, but on the Georgia-South Carolina border is a, a pretty large reservoir in a, in a chain of lakes that is used to generate power by the Georgia Power Company. And the lake that I grew up on, on the border of, of Georgia and South Carolina, is Lake Hartwell. Any, anybody know about Lake Hartwell? Okay, well, so it's an enormous lake hundreds of thousands of miles of lake shoreline. I mean, it's just enormous when I, well, I say 100,000 miles, hundreds of thousands of feet of shoreline that, uh, that you've got in Lake Hartwell. It's a big lake, and I grew up on it. And, and I can remember when storm clouds would come up and lightning would pop and winds would rage, and, and, and you would get out of the water because it's not very smart to be in the water when the lightning is, is, is popping, but for the most part, the, the water on the lake was, 
you know, okay, it's choppy. You wouldn't want to water ski on that on a day like that day. But really, as far as like being in danger and fearing for one's life, that's never something that I ever experienced on the lake. And so when I read when I read this, just growing up, I thought, man, this is a pretty weird deal that they're having such a storm. Sounds like an ocean storm that you're out with waves because there's what lakes don't. They're just I didn't get it. Had opportunity a few years back to to actually go to Israel, and we spent a little while on the Sea of Galilee. And, and and it's if you ever go, what you'll do is you'll have an opportunity that one of the guides will show you where Jesus was and 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 where Jesus would have walked on the water, and the guide will actually walk on the water on the Sea of Galilee. You're going, wait a minute, how does he do it? I'll let the cat out of the bag for you. He pours water on the deck of the boat and he walks on water on the Sea of Galilee. Da-da-da. Okay, so that's how it is. But what we had an opportunity to do was see the Sea of Galilee. It's it's big, but you can see from one side to another, okay? It's a big lake. It's a big open, uh, a big open sea where the Jordan River flows in and out. Okay, good deal. I can see what's going on here. But as I understand it, to the north, the mountain peaks are so much higher than sea level, and, and Israel, just as a nation, is, is right at, and, and, and there are portions of it as you get down south that are below sea level, there's a great distance in, in elevation in that place. And from Mount Hermon and those, that are, those mountains that are around there in the north, when the winds and the storms come across, it creates this funnel that goes down south and would come right over the Sea of Galilee causing this amazing storm. It wouldn't be out of the ordinary for fishermen to be on the sea, to be out in their boat, and for a storm to come up, and almost immediately they're taking their sails down and they're hunkering down in order to try to stay afloat because of these torrential storms that I'd never experienced. Some of you are fishermen. You like to be out on the water, and, and, and some of you may have even been in places that you wish you weren't when the storms came up. Well, that's where these disciples found themselves. Jesus saying, I got business over on the other side of the lake. Who then is this? This is someone who needed to be on the other side of the lake. You say, why did Jesus need to be on the other side of the lake? We're going to find out next week. What was Jesus' business on the other side of the lake? Jesus had an appointment to make that the person on the other side of the lake didn't even know Jesus had made for him. So we're going to find out about that next week. So Jesus says, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side. Who then is this? This is someone who was exhausted and fell asleep in a boat full of working men. Now, I listened to middle schoolers who are in a small place at, uh, at camp. We were in the cabins, and you start hearing them converse a lot. Greg had some high schoolers that conversed a lot, and so did John, had some younger middle schoolers that converse. And, and, and what ends up happening is their conversation pretty quickly turns to debate, which is nothing more than friendly argument 
And then before long, you drop the friendly and it just ends up in argument. And then they're going at one another and you just finally have to go, go away or hush or whatever it is. You just got to get away from me because I can't take this anymore. Those of you who have children know how it escalates really quickly. You know, things don't change as boys turn into men. Especially when they're working together. Especially when it's hot and sticky and you're frustrated and maybe we're a little tighter in this boat than we would prefer but we're all going all right well we've got the one okay we can all work this thing out you got some rowing you got some sitting those that are sitting are telling them telling the ones rowing how to row where to do how to pull how to push how to get just get out of my way and give me so you can imagine in this you know maybe 14-foot, 15-foot boat, fishing boat with one mast, with one sail, and a bunch of dudes in there trying to get from one side to the other, that it's going to be a bit chaotic. Jesus is so exhausted from ministry that he just goes to the stern, one of the other gospels tells us, and he just lays down on a cushion and just goes to sleep. Now, none of them record that Jesus says, hey, you guys, you guys good? Do you need me? That, none of them say that. It just says he gets into the boat, he looks for a thing to do, and he looks to lay down. Now, they'll figure it out. I, I, just, I told them where to go. They'll figure out how to get there. And he goes to sleep. This is someone who can sleep in the middle of men crammed in tight trying to figure out how to work together. Who is this then? This is someone who's exhausted from ministry. He's pouring himself out. He's physically depleted. Who, who is this then? As the storm becomes on them and things change in an instant and, and they're trying to, 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 uh, to reassess what we need to do. We're bringing a sail down. We're trying to figure out how, how do we manage this storm? How do we position ourselves? And then things get really hairy as the waves begin to dump into the boat. And now they're trying to bail water out of the boat. And they're panicking. And Jesus is still asleep. And I think that, 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 that tells us something about him spiritually I think it tells us a lot about him physically. He really was physically spent. And they're bailing and they're dumping. And, and you can imagine their voice level has elevated in, in, in decibel levels as they're calling out to one another over the storm. Get that. Pull here. Dump that. And Jesus is asleep. Who then is this? It says that they came to him and they woke him, say in verse number 24, Master, we're perishing. You know what they're also saying to him? They're saying, Jesus, you're going to die, man. Wake up. What did Jesus do? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. There was a calm. Who then is this? This is someone who spoke to the storm and it obeyed. Now, now let, just let this reality sink in. So, again, grew up on the lake, right? 
So as we were on our dock or out in our place in front of the, the property that my grandparents had, if we were on a float or a tube or on the dock or whatever we were doing, and the boat comes by pulling a skier or a tuber or whoever, the boat goes by, what does it create? It creates a wake. As a child, you used to love that because then you could ride the waves on the tube. It was tremendous. But you had to, you know, you, you had to ride them for a while. And if you were on the dock and you didn't like it, you were trying to read your book and you wish those people would just go somewhere else and ski, then you were sitting there bouncing on the dock until the waves quieted down. And you know it just didn't happen immediately. Boat goes by, but you're remembering the boat for the next 90 seconds or more so that the waves would quieten down. Luke's very intentional. The storm is raging. These men think they're perishing. They think they're dying. Jesus stands and rebukes the wind, commands the waves, and there is calm. I just, I just want you to imagine that. It's not that, that the, you know, the storm lifts and you're still hearing cracks of lightning and, and, and the wind's just kind of, it's, it's, it's slowing down and, and this is more manageable. No, you're rocking in the water and then all of a sudden, bam, you're glass. That caused those men to go, what just happened? It kind of makes me wonder, when it says that Jesus rebuked the storm, I'm just, I'm just wondering if Jesus had a problem with the storm before the disciples made such a big deal about it. I'm just imagining the storm doing what storms do. And all of a sudden, Jesus hollers at, and I know the storm's not a not person, I know that, but the storm going, what, what? We, 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 sorry. Our bad. I don't think Jesus is mad with the storm. I don't think Jesus is upset that the storm has, has ruined his trip from here to there. I think Jesus is just commanding the storm, rebuking it, stop, so that they can see who they've got in the boat. And they feel the calm and they notice that it went from raging to nothing. Now the only movement in this boat is the movement we're making. Who then is this? Jesus looks at him and says, where's your faith? I think it is in Mark that Mark records Jesus saying, what are you so afraid of? What was the big deal? Where's your faith? This is someone who expected his disciples to demonstrate more trust. They're panicking. They're losing their minds. And Jesus says, guys. I think what Luke is doing is showing us the power that Jesus has. He's revealing. He's pulling back the onion. He's showing us that Jesus is more than just a representative of God like the prophets. 
The prophets came from, from, uh, from different areas of the nation and they were empowered by God to speak for God and God even at times used them to perform miracles that, that were clearly related to God's power. Jesus is doing things more spectacularly than prophet, prophets. And now Jesus is commanding nature to bend to His will in the moment and it obeys. Only the Creator has the power and authority to command nature, to command His creation. Let's just think through the Old Testament. There's all kinds of examples that we could use, but let's just, let's just give a, just a, a, a light dusting of things in the Old Testament past that all of Israel would have known and, and been readily available to discuss. Genesis chapter number 1, obviously tells us that God can command His creation because He's the one who spoke and it came. And it was. And it was good. God spoke it and it did. God speaks and it does. One of the first times that God speaks to nature to do something unique then is in Genesis chapter number 9. After the fall and after humanity begins to demonstrate its utter wickedness, what does God do? God commands the elements to destroy the earth and the worldwide flood. It's what God does as creator with his creation. We go into the next book of the Old Testament, Exodus chapters number 7 through 10. We see that, that when Egypt was unwilling to release God's people, holding them in slavery, what did God do? God instituted a series of plagues. God caused nature to do things to, at times, just the Egyptians and not even the Israelites. So God commanded and nature bent to His will at the very Word of God. We see in Exodus chapter number 14 when the people were at a place that they could do nothing about with the army to their back and the Red Sea to their front. We saw that God caused the sea to split so that they might travel from one side to the other on dry ground. God commands and nature bends to His will. We see in Numbers chapter number 16 at the rebellion of a man named Korah who didn't think Moses and Aaron ought to be the ones leading the people. At Korah's rebellion, God caused the earth to open up and swallow Korah and all of those who had rebelled against God by rebelling against Moses, number 16. We see in Joshua chapter number 3, where the people of Israel are finally ready to go into the promised land and God calls the Jordan River to bunch up on one side and to dry out underneath. And the people walked across the Jordan River very similarly to the way they crossed the Red Sea because the Creator can cause nature to bend at His will. We see in Joshua chapter number 10, while the people were engaged in battle with peoples in the land that God had promised, that God caused the day to last longer than its allotted number of hours so that the people would have time to win the victory. You say, how did God do that without throwing all the other cosmological elements out of order? I don't know, but I know this. He made it. He can make it work how He wants to at His command and at His will. Because 
Only the Creator can do that with His creation. 1 Kings 17 and 18. We see that through the prophet Elijah that God caused it not to rain on the nation for three years. But God kept at least one little brook flowing because he provided for Elijah by that creek. And he caused Elijah to have food that he needed and he brought it to him by the butlers we know as the raven birds. Which seems kind of icky to me, a bird showing up and dropping off food and you eating it. But you know what? In a time of famine, you take what you get and say, thank you, Lord. I'm trusting that you're taking away all the germs from these ravens. They didn't care. Isaiah chapter 38. We'll know how God did this either. Hezekiah was told by God that he's not going to... God said, Hezekiah, you're going to die. Hezekiah said, please, God, give me some extra time. God said, okay, I'll give you some time. And Hezekiah says, well, then how am I going to know you're going to give me that extra time? God said, well, what do you want me to do? You want me to cause the sundial to go forward a little bit or to go backward? And, and Hezekiah thought, well, it'd be easy for God to cause time to go forward a little bit. I want to see it go backward. And so God caused the shadow cast on the sundial to go back 10 spaces. Now, how did that happen? I don't know. None of my business. I just know that's what God did showing his king. Why? Because God can do whatever God wants to do. He can turn the earth back and cause all of those other uh, uh, astrological elements to move just exactly in sync. Or God could have kept everything going and just pushed the shadow back a little bit if he wanted to. You know why? He made it. He's God. He can cause it to bend to his will. And then in Jonah, duh, right? Man and fish, fish goes back, spits it out. Really, God does what he wants with what he made. And so what's, what, what's significant about that? Okay, John 1.1. 1, 1. What does John 1.1 1, 1 says? In the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word, class? It's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's connecting Jesus to God. So is Luke. He's just being a little more subtle about it. John chapter 1, verse number 3. So we skip verse 2, go down to verse number 3. It says, all things were made through Him. The Word. Who's the Word? Jesus. All things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. So if the Creator can cause the creation to bend to His will, is it any mistake that Messiah, Jesus, the Word, from the beginning through eternity past, through which all things were created, could cause the storm to, hey, be quiet and it obey? See what Luke's doing? He's painting a picture. This is not just a man. This is not just a special man. He's painting a picture of the God-man. The one who is absolutely human. We see it right there. He's exhausted in the ship. And, and not even the men or the storm woke him up. He's so exhausted. And yet at the self-same time, he commands the elements and they obey. Psalm chapter 107 Verse 103, written years and years before Messiah ever came. The first three verses of Psalm 107, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, 
For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Who is the Lord in this psalm? He's none other than the I am that I am. Praise the Lord. Bless His holy name. He's the one who rescues. He's the one who does these mighty works. We jump down to verse number 25 of this psalm. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. Listen to that poetic language. Those waves went so high it looked like they were touching the sky. They went down into the depths, crashing so deep you would think you would hit the sea's floor. Their courage melted away in their evil plight, talking about those that are wicked on the sea that God has enraged. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Verse number 28, look at this. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Master, don't you care that we're perishing? They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse number 29. Watch this. Ready? He made the storm be still. Who? Yahweh. The I am that I am, that we are to bless his holy name. And the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet, that he brought uh, to their distress haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And what did they do? They turned and went, who are we dealing with? Because they were dull of understanding, just like you and I would have been had we been in their place. But you know who they were in the presence of in a very real way? The voice in the bush that said, you go tell them, I am that I am. You know who we're looking at? We're looking at the second person of God in flesh. God the Son. God incarnate. The God-man. We're looking. Listen, class. I'm going to give you a technical little word right here. We're looking at what theologians call the hypostatic union. It is two natures, human and divine, working together, not confused, and not one bending over the other, but in perfect harmony in one existence. You can't explain it. You can't understand it. There it is. The exhausted Messiah, the man, and the Creator. Hush. And it obeys. Who then is this? This is the God-man. 
If we walk away from here not seeing Jesus Christ, God the Son, then we've missed the biggest point. So don't miss it. Who is Jesus amongst other religious people? (laughs) He's God. He's the God-man. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father who uniquely is distinct from the Son. No one has access to the Spirit who, ironically, is completely different than the Son and the Father. No one gets to the Creator except through Christ. Who then is this? He's our Savior. Crucified in our place. Raised for our justification. And received only by faith in as broken condition as we can be. You know, Christians make some big mistakes when we see this and we start thinking about real-life storms and we start thinking about storms in life and we want to we, we apply this, we make some big mistakes. Let me tell you what those are. We'll be done here in just a second. Listen to these. Number one, we make the mistake when we forget that the storms in our life are under God's complete and sovereign control. We, we make a big mistake when we think we go through storms, whether real, coming from the Atlantic, up under Cuba and around. We, we make a mistake when we forget that those storms are completely under God's sovereign control. We make a mistake when we forget that the storms of our life that we call financial and relational and and employment type storm, we forget that God's in complete control of all of those. It's a big mistake we make. But then we turn right around and make this mistake. We believe that everything that happens, whether real or or particular to our life, we we start believing that every storm is something that happens because God's causing it. When there's sorrow and difficulty in our life, we forget that that God's in control and we make the same mistake when we forget or believe that God is causing these things necessarily to bring us harm. Make a big mistake when we assume that Christians, God's people, are exempt from suffering that everybody else has experienced. We make a big mistake. We think, I, I ought not be going through this because, God, I'm one of your people. Remember, the Egyptians are the ones that are supposed to be suffering this, but not your people. That's a big mistake we make. Knowing that God can, knowing that God is able, knowing that God is in control and thinking that somehow He's bound to keep us from suffering. You know, human suffering is a result of sin. It's a part of the curse. It's something that is in our world because of the fall and we experience suffering just like Jesus did. But God uses all of those sufferings for His glory if we'll allow Him. He'll give us strength to go through them. He'll give us strength to endure them. He'll give us wisdom to navigate them. And then He'll use it for His glory if we'll just submit to Him and trust Him by faith. Christians make big mistakes when in this confusion we live in the two extremes. We live in the extreme of fear. We live in the extreme of recklessness. I think about when it comes to real life storms, when it comes to the things that are brewing in the Atlantic coming our way, bearing down, 
We make a big mistake as Christians when we live in fear. And we let fear captivate our mind and we're just, we're just, you know, we, we, we forget everything else that we've called to believe and know and do and to be and we're just in a hole somewhere because we're so afraid of what's coming our way. I think we make a big mistake. And, and I think we're pretty foolish when we just stand out at the storm and we hold on to a signpost saying, bring it on, I'm one of God's children. You know, wisdom... And the bus coming your way, stepping out of the way is pretty wise. If you don't, it's going to hit you. So not being reckless, not being dominated by fear. Why? Because God is in control. God knows what He's doing. God's not causing these things to make life hard on me, but He will use them. And He will use me if I will allow Him to in the difficulty, in the suffering. And then lastly, forgetting that God works all things for His glory. And that no storm will ever alter his plan. You know the first thing Jesus said was, Hey, let's get in a boat and go to the other side. Jesus had business on the other side. You know where all of those disciples were going to get? The other side. Why? Jesus was so comfortable enough to sleep. Because he knew his father had said, You got business on the other side. And so Jesus just what? Rested in what the Father had said. Trusted in what God was doing in his life. And he laid down and went to sleep. I I wonder if what Jesus wanted those disciples to do were to just go, fine, if he's going to sleep, I'm going to sleep. And just lay down in the boat. I kind of think that might have been what Jesus was expecting. Hey, look, if I ain't afraid, what did what the meteorologist, I don't know his last name is, Dennis said, no, rule number seven, if I ain't scared, you're not scared. If I'm not going crazy, you're not going crazy. Action news, Jesus said, look, if I'm asleep, you can sleep. Wow, we're okay. We're in God's hands. He's capable. Trust him. Trust me. Now I want you to ask, answer these questions out as you stand. Stand with him. I want you to answer these questions out loud. And don't be bashful about it. Here they are. Is Jesus worthy of our trust? Are God's plans and purposes unalterable, meaning they cannot change? Yeah? Does anything take God by surprise? Does Jesus use even negative experiences in our life to accomplish His will in us and through us? If Jesus doesn't calm the storm around us, has He failed? If it's God's will for you to get from point A to point B, can anything stop that from happening? Are you able to know God's exact will in every aspect of your life all the time? Well, then you have no choice but to walk by faith in the one who does know and will accomplish everything he intends to do. Saying no to fear when things out of your knowledge and out of your control pop up all around you, and they most certainly will. Maybe they are today. If they're not, 
They're probably just around the corner. The God-man. That everything must bend to His will. We can trust Him. Where's your faith? Believe in Jesus if you never have. Trusting Him and Him alone by faith as Savior and Lord. Whatever He says, do with confidence. Get in the boat. Ride that thing. If that's where He's at, that's where you need to be. Don't be surprised when storms arise. God's not surprised when storms arise.